I've come across um, World War II plane wreckages, ancient Roman ruins, you know, and then I've also come across like little tiny chapels that some unknown farmer 300 years ago put on his property. And it's like every day is just filled with things that you don't really expect. Welcome to DVA with Rolf Potts, where I talk with experts, public figures, and interesting people about fascinating topics that meander off topic. Today I talk once again about trekking travel, this time specifically routes and strategies for trekking in Europe, which means I talked to Cassandra Overby, who wrote a book called Explore Europe on Foot. You know, this podcast has always been pretty personal for me, and I've been thinking about outdoor and trekking travel a lot recently. And in fact, after reading Cassandra's book and talking to her for this podcast, I now have a plan to take my nephew Luke hiking on the Alpine Pass route in Switzerland when he graduates from high school next summer. You know, it's interesting, a few weeks ago I did an episode about strategies for travelers in Paris, and I interviewed my own students at the Paris Writing Workshop. I thought it would be interesting to get the perspective of non-experts who'd just spent a month in the city. But while I made it clear that these were impressionistic strategies for first-timers in Paris, one of my listeners, who's been a friend for a long time, took issue with the fact that my students' insights focused on things like parks and castles and patisseries. She told me that these things just scratched the surface of a city like Paris, but I think it's easy to forget just how interesting it is when you're in a place for the first time to scratch the surface of that place in a novel and slow-placed way. So much of travel in places like Europe focuses on big cities, and I think that's why it's easy to split hairs and take issue with what people suggest we might do there, whereas this is less of an issue on the hiking trails of Europe, since by the very fact of traveling on foot, you're keeping things slow and novel. So today, Cassandra and I talk about why it feels so new and exciting to go slow and explore Europe on foot. We talk about when to go and how to choose a great route, like the Lake District in England or the Tour de Mont Blanc in the Alps. We talk about routes that go through remote mountains and other routes that go through vineyards and medieval villages. We talk about how to plan and prepare for this kind of trip and why this kind of travel can be the cheapest way to see Europe. We talk about how you can take advantage of sleeping huts and how many of these trails don't require that you even bring a tent or a sleeping bag when you go. Because this kind of travel allows you to go light, you can bring a lightweight travel pack of the kind made by Tortuga, which is sponsoring this episode. Check out a selection of Tortuga packs at rolfpotts.com tortuga, and if you find something you like, you can get 10% off your order at checkout with the promo code DEVIATE. And if by chance you want to combine the treks of Europe with trekking in, say, Morocco and Ethiopia and Kazakhstan and China and New Zealand, you can create that kind of long-term travel itinerary with the help of Airtrex, my other sponsor. Just go to airtrex.com and use their flight planning tools to test out some hypothetical dream trips. Along the way, you'll find out how you can save tons of money on round-the-world and multi-stop itineraries. But for now, settle in for this interview about trekking in Europe, which I did in the spirit of someone who's going to do just that very soon. The conversation starts by recounting some of the experiences that turned Cassandra into a trekker back in the day, experiences that were born out of a frustration with a certain kind of travel. Let's listen in. You know, when I was younger and dreaming of travel, um, having traveled not very far out of Kansas, past Missouri or maybe Colorado, I, when I dreamed of traveling in faraway places, I often saw myself doing things like hiking through the Swiss Alps. And then when I actually became a traveler, I did a little bit of hiking, but I sort of fell into that pattern of um, taking trains and going to cultural sites and staying in hostels and, and not necessarily going on foot, but going through a combination of other ways of travel. Um, and it's, it was often city-oriented. So I think it's interesting that in your book, Cassandra, at the very beginning you talk about going on a dream trip in your 20s to Guatemala and then sort of having it flame out. Can you tell us a little bit about that experience? Yeah, so I had saved up um, for a grand trip around the world, and I had done a lot of traveling in the past, but never such a big adventure as the one I had planned. So I saved money, you know, for over a year, and my plan was to start in Guatemala and then move on, kind of come up with a greater plan when I was in Guatemala and keep going. And uh, I lived in Guatemala for three months. I was a house mom at an orphanage and took care of like 26 little girls. Um, and there was just something about that trip that broke me as far as travel goes. And I broke up with travel. 
Like, like, what did it matter if I saw another temple? What did it matter if I ate another foreign meal? I had kind of lost that, that gusto or the, the something that really made me feel like it was fulfilling. It wasn't fulfilling to see things anymore. So you were going, were you traveling around in Central America and just sort of seeing uh, tourist sites and cities and things like that? Yeah. And I had spent some time in the jungle, you know, as a house mom in the orphanage. Um, but then I went to Antigua and I was just kind of traveling around to little mountain villages and hiking volcanoes and things like that. And um, yeah, I just, I got to the point where for some reason it just didn't matter anymore. And so I threw all of my enthusiasm in the opposite direction, but I felt like the biggest and the weirdest failure I mean, who saves up for a big trip around the world? And you know the fanfare that you leave with mm. among friends and family when you're doing something that epic. And, you know, after three months to just pack it all in and go home, and I had only spent like $1,000 of the $18,000 that I had saved up. And I was so embarrassed. I actually felt really ashamed. I was like, you know, not a lot of people have this opportunity and here I am doing something that other people would love to do. Why can't I be happy about it? And I just, I couldn't. And it was super embarrassing, but I was like, you know, I, I can't do what I think everybody thinks I should do. I really just have to listen to this as weird as it is. And I went home um, and I, you know, threw all of my energy and enthusiasm and that extra money that I had into really establishing myself and trying to find some meaning in making a home, a more permanent residence. And so it's kind of ironic that uh, flash forward just a few years and when I met the guy that I would ultimately marry, on our first date, he told me that his big dream was a grand tour of Europe that would be months long. And I listened to his plan and I gave him advice because I had done a lot of traveling through Europe and I never really thought anything of it, you know, here, I was just giving travel advice to this great guy that I had met. Um, but he had actually planned to go on a trip, uh, just a couple months later. And so when we determined that we actually really liked each other, then he postponed his trip. And then he ultimately invited me to go with him. And that was kind of where I had the moment of, am I going to, to really stay off the travel bandwagon forever? Or at least, you know, more long-term than this? Or am I going to take a chance and quit my nice day job and, um, you know, pack everything up again and and go out there? And I ended up going out there, and that's when I stumbled on walking as a better way to travel. And that has completely transformed my relationship with travel. And it made it not just great again, but it made it feel really fulfilling. I'm curious, was there was there an initial plan for it to be sightseeing in cities or was the... Yes, completely. Okay, so what um, was the turning point? <laughs> the turning point was that we were eating so much heavy restaurant food and we were spending so much time, you know, being um, tourists that we really needed to kind of escape and do something relaxing and do something that we really love to do at home. And I love to walk. I am just, I mean... My happy spot is just putting some shoes on, putting a couple things in a little pack and just heading out and going for eight miles, 10 miles, whether that's like around a local lake several times or just in the mountains. I just really love to walk. And so we started doing these walks and all of a sudden it was kind of crazy. We were seeing better things than when we had, you know, been sightseeing so much and we felt like we really got to connect with locals more and we got out of the places where there were lots of other visitors and we really had, you know, more of an authentic experience it felt. And so it was kind of crazy that something that we love to do at home actually was even way better traveling. Um, I feel really lucky that I stumbled on it. What are some places that you went and what are in a concrete sense, some of the, the joys and blessings of walking versus the sort of the standard tourist route across Europe? So one of my favorite trails that we did, um, and it was actually my first long distance hike in Europe was a walk on the Swiss Alpine pass route. And being able to be out among the cows. I mean, we got chased by 
a bunch of curious cows several times. Um, at one point we got stuck in a mountain hut that had tons of flies, um, which doesn't sound appealing and it wasn't, but it was very authentic for how things are in Switzerland when it's really hot in the summer in some spots. Um, and we were walking through these little villages where time really hadn't taken a toll. I mean, things were much as they were 50 years ago, a hundred years ago, 150 years ago and getting to speak with people. I'm, I'm fortunate enough to speak German. And so I got to really kind of connect with these local farmers. And one night we were walking and we came across this old man and an old woman and they had a little girl by the hand and they had a huge alpenhorn. And, you know, we had been walking through the Alps all day and the sun was kind of setting. It had taken us a little longer than we thought to do this section of trail. And when we came across them, you know, I'd heard about an alpenhorn, but I never actually heard one played. And so I asked the man if he would play us a couple notes, and he ended up playing the most beautiful song that I've ever heard. And, you know, here he was in his later hosen. His wife was in her dirndl. Um, they had their picnic lunch still from the afternoon. And it was just a really magical way to experience music the landscape, and to just kind of have everything blending together in a way that was so magical, we could never have planned it. Well, as I understand it, not only is this a way to really get to know people outside of tourist zones and to meet people in a much more traditional way, in sort of a later hosen dirndl way, it's also cheaper, isn't it? It is. And that's because your main activity is walking. You know, it's not purchasing um, expensive tickets into different attractions, and so really your main costs are gear, food, and accommodations. And gear really doesn't have to cost you a lot. I mean, comfy shoes and a good backpack will get you where you need to go. And, you know, all of the accommodations in Europe tend to be cheaper than they are in the United States, which is great. And a lot of the food. And that holds true, especially in rural spots where things aren't as expensive as they are in the cities. Well, I want to dig into some of the specifics on that. A little bit later, we can talk about how to prepare and how to find these sorts of adventures. But I, I would also think that while you're walking from place to place in a, in, in a place like Switzerland, you're less tempted to sort of fall back on your social media feed or your computer screen. And you're more, more likely to, to live in a new relationship to your body than you do at a desk. Oh, completely. Yeah, it's really nice because in some of these places – you know, there is no Wi-Fi, there's no cell, cell phone service. And so you don't even have the temptation of, you know, checking social media or checking in with work or anything. You can actually really unplug and get that restorative experience that vacation was always meant to be. And even in the places where you can get cell phone service, um, you know, if you're in the mountains, you really don't need it. And I find that, you know, a lot of times I'll just put my phone on airplane mode and, you know, I always have my smartphone with me when I'm hiking because I'm I'm walking with GPX tracks, and it's a really easy way to always know where you're going and where you're at. Um, and so, I just look at that, and I kind of, you know, am able to really focus on the landscape and what I'm hearing. And it's really nice to not have your attention pulled away every few seconds, like you know, we're normally kind of conditioned to do when we have our phones all the time. And as I understand it on these trails in Europe, it's not like you're you're hiking through the middle of the Montana wilderness for days and days. You're actually mixing up you're sometimes you're going through villages and stopping at pubs and restaurants and sometimes you're staying at at huts or maybe camping, but sometimes you're staying in homestays. So how does the vibe of a European trek um differ than than from what we might be used to in, in the United States? Well, I think you've really hit on a key difference there, and that is in the United States, most of our trails go through wilderness. And so they're out in areas where you're not going to find a restaurant, you're not going to find a hotel room or anything like that. And while that's really great if you really enjoy backpacking and, you know, carrying your food and your bedding and all of that with you, um, in Europe, the trails really focus on the best of civilization, and you still get to be out in the landscape, and you still get to experience really amazing nature, um, especially when you're walking during the day. But at night, the trail always brings you into some sort of hamlet where you can find 
really great culture, music, food, and I call it a way more civilized way to hike. And it actually kind of ruined me for backpacking because I used to really enjoy backpacking. And now I don't because I really love not having to pack a bunch of food, especially backpacking food, because I'm going to get a really authentic and hot lunch at a mountain hut. You know, I really love that I don't have to pack a sleeping bag on my back because I can look forward to sleeping in a real bed. And it's also nice to be able to go out and do things at night, like, you know, have a glass of wine or go and listen to some music or just wander around town or wander into the random beautiful church that you find. And I think when you get that the best of nature and the best of civilization, then kind of going back and forth like you do, like, you know, nature during the day, civilization at night, it's just a really great way to feel like you're getting a full experience. So when you talk about backpacking, you don't mean like hostels through Europe backpacking. You mean like trail backpacking where you're carrying your tent and your sleeping bag with you. you that you're right. actually, Yeah. Explain that a little bit because I think a lot of American listeners have no idea what that even is. Okay, so yeah, in the United States, when you are going to do a long distance trek on a trail, um, usually you have to stay out in the wilderness because the trails don't go through towns. And so, you know, you have to carry your backpacking stove and your backpacking food, and you have to carry your sleeping bag and your sleeping pad and all of your clothes and your water and your tent and all of that. And you have to carry it all on your back. So, you know, for a light backpacking trip, you may be having 25 or 30 pounds on your back. Um, and because you have to be self-sufficient, but when you're hiking in Europe, you don't have to be that self-sufficient because there are those restaurants, there are those hotels, there are different facilities, um, to really cut all that weight off your back. Is the social atmosphere different than a, like a backpack, a backcountry hike in the United States? Yes. Although one thing that I think is really, really nice is that you still get that hiker camaraderie. You know, when you're backpacking a trail in the United States, um, you know, generally you get in a hiking bubble and people are kind of walking um, the same stages every day. And so you kind of bump into them and uh, maybe you see them in the morning and then you'll run into them after lunch and then you see them again, you know, at a camping spot that night. And and you kind of get to make a friendship that way. And you get that same thing when you're hiking in Europe, which is really wonderful because there's just something about the spirit of other walkers that's really nourishing. And they just tend to always be really amazing people and really fun to talk to. And so you still get that camaraderie. But then outside of that, um, you know, you just have this excitement of being in a really cool spot, a really cool town. And and it's different that way than in the United States because there's really something to look forward to at night. Instead of just setting up your tent, eating your food, and going to sleep, you get to check into your guest house, go out for a really great meal, have an extra glass of wine, go to bed early because, you know, you've really used your body, and look forward to the next day. I'd imagine there's a special kind of camaraderie with the people that you do occasionally run into. You know, I was in, um, I climbed Adams Peak in Sri Lanka this winter. And one nice thing about that adventure, which happened in the middle of the night, it doesn't take very long. It's about eight hours. And there's people of all ages from little kids to the elderly. But you're all doing the same thing. You're all headed to the same peak. Um, Even if you're from different religions, then you're sort of in this same activity. Is there a similar vibe on these European trails where you sort of, you get a camaraderie with people that you might not get in a city or at a youth hostel? Yeah, especially on the trails that are difficult. So, you know, you have some bucket list trails in Europe, especially the ones going through the Alps. A good example is Tour du Mont Blanc, which goes through Switzerland, Italy, and France. And it's probably the most famous of the Alpine routes. And you know, that trail is really challenging. There is a lot of elevation gain. And so when you're really sweating and when you feel like you can't really go up anymore, it's nice to be able to look over and feel like everybody else is kind of suffering just like you are. And it leads for all these opportunities for laughter and for that camaraderie, because you're all really trying to do something challenging together. Yeah, when I was looking at your book, the the Mount Blanc Trail really stood out in part because it covers three countries, right? If you if you do the whole thing, you go through three different it countries. It does. 
Yeah. And so I think, the, again, going back to who I was when I was eight, the idea that you would walk through con- three countries sounds super cool. But I also found some routes that, that rung a bell when I was looking at your book, Exploring Europe on Foot. One was the Alpine Pass route, which I think, does that go across Switzerland? It does. Yeah. From east to west across Switzerland through the Alps. Yeah. And then, then, then the Lake District, which, um, which I recognize because of Wordsworth, you know, in England. Yeah. Uh, and then, of course, the, the Camino de Santiago, which really is far and away the 800-pound the gorilla of European walking. I mean, I have friends literally who are posting from the Camino de Santiago right now on Facebook. Um, so keeping in mind that it seems like everybody knows about the, the Pilgrimage Road Camino de Santiago and that things like the Lake District and Mont Blanc are well known. How do you go about finding a place to hike in Europe? I mean, do you do you just start with the famous ones and learn from there, or what? What, what are some resources to help you figure out which hike is the best hike for you in a place like Europe? So, when I started exploring Europe on foot, it was actually pretty hard for me to find good trails, and it wasn't because the trails didn't exist; it was because they weren't curated, and so it was very difficult for me to really pinpoint, you know, not only what was going to be great for me, but just what was out there. So that's a big thing that I do in my book. I have a whole long chapter on the kinds of trails in Europe. And I think that's a really great starting place for people because it talks about the different categories of trails. Like there are GR trails, which stands for Grand Randonnée. And it's a French word, but they apply that GR label to a lot of the main routes in Europe. Some of those GR routes are thousands of kilometers long and they're themed. So you can visit, you know, several European capitals on one GR. Um, You can go through the best of whole countries on other GRs. So they really vary um, in what they offer, but those are big trails. Then there are biking trails in Europe, lots of biking trails and good biking trail resources. But you don't have to bike those trails. You can actually walk them as well. Um, And then another category of trail is a tourist trail. And it's called a tourist trail. That's what I call it. um, Because those are trails that were founded by tourism organizations. So they're made so that people can come and visit that area, experience the best of it with that trail. But they come with really amazing resources because they know that people are coming from out of town to do that trail. So a lot of times those trails have free maps. Sometimes they have their own websites um, that help you book accommodations and all of that. And uh, so that's another section. Then there are pilgrimage routes. So kind of once you figure out what these different categories are and where you can delve into more information for each category, it becomes so easy to to figure out what's out there. So I think that's one of the biggest things that I did in my book was curate that so that people could find the kind of trail for them. So that gives people a good idea of what's out there. But if people are having a hard time knowing where to start, I also recommend 15 medium distance routes of my own um, that are really great to start with. And they're not great to start with because they're easy, but they're things that I have done that I find really amazing um, and that I highly recommend other people also do. And that's sort of the heart of your book, right, is, is an explanation of these of these 15 routes. Um, right. And I think it's interesting that you, you recommend, I mean, you have these tourist routes which feel very new and are very much geared toward a global audience and are probably more likely to be able to accommodate people who aren't familiar with Europe. But then we, you have pilgrimage routes, and I think you made the point that you don't have to be a religious person to appreciate a pilgrimage route. If you're on a place that people have been walking for centuries— through an you know interior uh, meditative style, then you can also use that to to reflect on your own spiritual self in a way that need not attach itself to a religion. Right, and actually, that's what um, my husband and I did before we got married. We chose um, part of the Camino de Santiago. It's actually a section called the English Way, and it starts in a town called Ferrol in Spain, and that's where all the British pilgrims historically. Um, got off their ships and started walking to the cathedral. And so we chose that five-day section of the Camino to actually meditate on the vows that we were going to make because we were going to try to get married at the end of the trail. And, uh, you know, we met a British pilgrim along the way that we really liked, and we asked him if he would marry us. And he wasn't ordained um, or anything, uh, but we asked him to do our ceremony. 
so we spent those five days really contemplating marriage, and then we got married in a pop-up ceremony on the steps of the cathedral. Wow. What and a so I romantic think story. It's a cool way to, yeah, it's a cool way to change a pilgrimage into, you know, something totally different as well. And use it still for contemplation, but just in a slightly different way. Well, I think in that case, you're you're thinking about, you know, the institution and the duty and the the mission and even the spiritual journey of marriage in a way that you wouldn't were you just sitting in your office in in Seattle, right? Oh, totally. And we use the opportunity to you know go and find time alone as well to write our vows and all of that. And so it was it just provided a a totally different way for us to connect with the seriousness of marriage. Well, keeping in mind that not everyone in my audience is necessarily going to be hiking to get betrothed or write their vows, (laughs) I do want to cover some practical matters. But one question that occurred to me as you were talking about these these routes that go through actual cities, um, when you get to the edge of a city, do you walk into the city or do you take buses? And and do these trails connect themselves in in the manner of like the Appalachian Trail? Or is it... Is it functional to, to grab a bus or to make transfers between stretches of these roads? So one of the great things about hiking in Europe is that there are so many opportunities to shorten distances with public transportation. Um, so you can walk through cities and keep following the trail. They're very well signed typically, um, but you don't have to. So if you get to the edge of a city and, you know, you'd really like to go and do something else for a while, um, you know, you can hop on a bus or a train or sometimes even a funicular, a gondola and and shorten to go to get where you need to go. Um, But, yeah, typically these routes run all the way through cities. Yeah. So let's let's think about, you know, maybe someone who's listening to this podcast right now and thinking, yeah, you know, this is something I want to do. Let's start. Let's let's talk about some nuts and bolts. For example, what time of year is the best time of year to to think about uh, a walking or a trekking or a hiking trip in Europe? So you're typically thinking three seasons here. So spring and fall being the shoulder seasons where you know you're going to get less uh, people around you, but you could run into a lot more rain. And in those shoulder seasons, you know you can't really do high alpine routes because they're still covered in snow. So if you want a guaranteed great time to go, you know, you're going to have to choose the high season in summer. Um, My personal favorite is actually going in the end of August or the beginning of September, because typically the weather is really nice. You haven't hit any of the rain yet and the snow is still gone from a lot of those high alpine routes. So you have a lot of choices available to you. I'd imagine a lot of Europeans are going back to work around then too. That in August, yes. in August proper, there is the trails are probably full of Europeans. Whereas by the end of August or September, you have them more to yourself. Right, totally. So, um, so it's sort of a summer or a shoulder season activity. Um, is it something that you need to train for physically? It depends on what kind of trail you choose. So, I like to say that you don't have to be a super athlete to explore on foot. And that's because there's kind of a different trail for everybody. One example is the Alsace wine route through um, the Alsace region of France. It winds through these beautiful vineyards and these medieval towns. And it actually hits a different medieval town every three miles on average. And it's very flat because it's typically a path that's biked. It's paved. Um, so, you know, for someone who's looking for a flat and relatively easy, um, kind of luxurious hike, you can do that and you wouldn't need much training at all. And there's plenty of wine, plenty of wine. Yes, plenty of wine to go around. Um, but then, you know, if you're looking to do something a little more challenging, if you want to tackle the Alpine pass route through Switzerland or especially anything in the mountains, I recommend training just so that you kind of work out how your body's going to function on trail. It's not just for your fitness level. I mean, the benefits to training in advance are that, you know, you kind of figure out how quirky your body is and how to work with that. So maybe it's that your knees hurt when you go downhill, or, you know, maybe it's that your backpack chafes you in a certain spot. It's so good to just work all of that stuff out in advance because all of that stuff is treatable. That way, when you get on trail, you actually have a good time. Um, yeah, so is it possible to sort of get in shape and sort to sort of harden your feet on the journey itself, or is that something that should really be done in advance? 
some people choose to do, you know, to just show up. I mean, a lot of pilgrims who want to walk the long pilgrimage routes, like the Camino de Santiago, they may do a little bit of walking in advance, but a lot of them just kind of show up. They've never walked, you know, a week, let alone a month or three months at a time. Um, And all of a sudden, that's what they do when they're on trail. So you can show up and, you know, your body will work itself out. You will get in shape as you go. Um, But if you have a limited amount of time, say you're going for, you know, like a week or something, that's not really enough time for your body to to make itself over. Hmm. Yeah. Um, another, another sort of square one consideration is do you go by yourself or do you find a friend to go with you? And what are the pluses and minuses of both? So I've done both. I've done a lot of traveling by myself and I've done hiking in Europe by myself. Um, and you know, I like to tell people cause people are always asking me, do you feel safe or are you always worried? And, I like to say I feel safer walking around Europe in the middle of the night than I do walking around midday in my neighborhood in Seattle. Um, And so it can be really amazing to go by yourself because you don't have to, you know, keep in mind anybody else's wants, you know, and this is really nice if you're doing something to kind of celebrate a change in your life. And if you want to have time to contemplate and really focus on your thoughts and the experience, you can have that and, And it's great to go by yourself. And, you know, if you do, my suggestion is find a busy trail and not busy like you're going to see another person every, you know, 10 minutes, but just a trail that's popular enough that you will run into people every day because that way you feel like you get to know other people. They get to know you so you can have companionship when you want it and you have the security of knowing that people are kind of looking out for you and checking in on you. But then you get the solitude that you want as well. Going with someone can also be a really amazing experience because, you know, it's always, it is always safer to hike in pairs at least because if anything happens, if you sprain an ankle or anything like that, at least you have someone who can help. Um, and it can be a really fun thing to experience. Like I've gotten to do all of these research trips for my book and I took a different person on almost every leg and it was really fun to make memories with my mom and my aunt and my husband and my sister and friends and um and they're so much stronger memories than if we had just simply traveled together um and so I really recommend going with other people as well yeah actually when I was reading your book, it made me think, man, my nephew's graduating from high school next year. I should take him on one of these trails so so Luke, if you're listening, there's an idea for you <laughs> S- summer of twenty twenty um so you know a big difference between hiking in in the American West, for example, is that you do have huts, you do have homestays, you do have guest houses you can stay at. Do you need to reserve those in advance? It depends on the trail you choose um some trails like Tour de Mont Blanc get really busy in the summer. And so you do want to reserve your spot in advance because if you just show up to those mountain huts, you might not get a bed. Um, but then if you're going in shoulder season or if you're choosing a trail that's a little less popular, um, sometimes you can be more spontaneous. I've done the spontaneous thing. It's always worked out for me in the end, but, um, I prefer to make my reservations in advance just because I like the security of knowing that I'm going to have a bed when I show up. And can you reserve these these mountain huts? Is is everything reservable from a distance, or is it something you have to do when you land in country? Everything is um, able to be done via distance. The thing that sometimes gets a little tricky is that some of these mountain huts don't have internet, and so you know you can't really send an email or you can't book via an online form. You have to call. And that's where Skype or WhatsApp come in really handy so that you can contact those spots. And, um, you know, some of the spots, their English isn't great. So it can be helpful to, you know, jot down what you want to say, run it through an online translator, um, and that can help you communicate your request as well. Yeah, I think I think WhatsApp has really changed uh, the way this sort of travel happens in the last few years. I was in Sumatra this winter, and when I was communicating with my trekking guide on, in the Mentawai Islands, we used WhatsApp. You know, often he didn't have a, an internet connection. I certainly didn't when I was in the Mentawai Islands. And then there were certain beach resorts as well that weren't actual trekking situations. But WhatsApp is just a, is just a great way to collect that sort of information. I'm curious though for someone who 
who doesn't use WhatsApp or the internet to make these reservations, what's the worst that can happen if you show up to a hut or a village and you don't have a place to stay? If you get to a mountain hut and there is nowhere for you to go, those, those hut keepers are going to be kind enough to do whatever they can to help you, whether that's giving you just a corner of the floor or, you know, calling you a taxi to find you the next closest accommodations. They're always so wonderful and so accommodating. And so they will go out of their way to help you. Um, but you might not have the best spot to stay. Is it worth it to carry a tent and a sleeping bag just in case? Or is, is that not even necessary? No, not even necessary. I don't at all. Okay. Now, um, you mentioned that there are there there are guides for these. You can hike in groups, and there are different kinds of support. Um, would you recommend having guides or support? And if so, when would those sorts of features for these hikes come in handy? So I wrote my book with the intention of teaching people everything I know that so that they can go out and do these trips entirely by themselves. Um, and that's what I typically do is I. I occasionally will book one-off services like luggage transfer so that I don't have to carry my bag every day. Um, or, you know, I'll book a taxi here or there. Um, but I usually don't walk with a guide and I usually don't walk with, um, any directions from a company that does self-guided tours. So I really like to do it all myself. That said, you know, there's kind of a, there's a gradient of assistance that you can get with these trails, independent, totally independent being one end and a fully serviced guided tour on the other end. But in between, you know, you have things like luggage transfer so that you don't have to carry your big bag every day with you. You can just have a light day pack um, and it's extremely affordable. Then you kind of go up and you could book a self-guided walking tour. And in that case, they will book all of your accommodations for you um, and they'll give you a map and they'll give you walking directions. And then you don't have a guide on trail, but you didn't really have to do the logistics of your trip. You just kind of follow what they say to do. So that's a really good middle way, you know, for someone who's not comfortable planning and leading their own trip. But then, you know, you can do a fully guided walking tour and that's actually sneakily good for a few things. On one hand, it's really good for people who don't have a lot of technical hiking skills and want to choose something that's, you know, out in nature or a little beyond their reach. Maybe something, you know, that's in the Alps or I did Iceland's Lago Vega trek. And that's actually, that's a lot of wilderness that you get there. And so it can be good to have someone who has experience with the trail. Um, with a guide, you also can have the opportunity to meet other walkers and stay with other walkers and and have that community, which is great for people who are traveling alone. Um, because, you know, you have a built-in community with you. A guide is also really great for people who, like me, tend to be over planners and want to break from that. So, you know, you don't have to book your accommodations. You don't have to really do anything besides show up and walk. They'll even narrate the trail for you. So that's the most expensive option. Um, but it can be really wonderful to just let somebody else take the reins for a while, especially if you've never done this kind of trip before and you're a little nervous about it. I want to get into gear, but while we're talking about the idea of guided treks or, or having a little bit more information, when we talk about gear, I'll start by talking about smartphones and apps. Is Are there guide apps that can help give you information and directions for a hike like this in Europe? So there are a couple different things that are really helpful. So I always walk with GPX tracks and not a lot of people are familiar with GPX tracks, but they're basically like Google maps that you use while you're driving, but for the trail. So, you know, it's an electronic map that will show you a route that you're on and you just kind of follow the line and you can make it so it, it plots a line where you're walking. So if the two lines are, you know, superimposed, you know that you are exactly where you need to be. Does it require a connection or does it just work with it GPS? It doesn't. Okay. So um, a lot of times what you can do is just download the map, download the route, load everything up when you have a Wi-Fi connection, and then you can go offline and still have everything working while you're on trail. The maps do refresh a little bit better if you have um, some form of cell phone service, but you don't have to. I've done it both with cell phone service and without, and it's worked great. Um, so I highly recommend GPX tracks. 
to keep you on route. And, you know, a lot of people aren't familiar with paper maps so much anymore. And it can be hard to figure out exactly where you are on a paper map. But with GPX tracks, it shows you exactly where you are. So if you happen to get off track a little bit, it can be a lot easier to find your way back to the right route. So that is very helpful. When I started hiking with GPX tracks, it revolutionized um, my hiking and it just gave me a lot more confidence because I don't like to feel lost ever. And, and so it made me just feel really great on trail. Um, and then the other thing that can be really helpful is that you can get some walking directions uh, available online and carry them with you on your, on your smartphone. Um, so, you know, you can download guidebooks as part of the Kindle app or, you know, whatever reading app that you use on your phone and, and look at the walking directions for each stage of the trail and be thumbing through those as you're walking. And I also wrote three detailed guidebooks that go along with three of the trails in my book because they, nobody had written about them before. And so, you know, those are also a great resource. They have walking directions and they're paired with GPX tracks so that you can be toggling back and forth between them and know exactly where you are. And then also get some walking directions that are written out and um, get some narration about what you're seeing. Now, is GPX tracks, is it like an app you can get in the app store or is it a broader category of, of technology? So GPX tracks are a broader category of technology, but you can find specific apps. Um, so my favorite is Gaia, G-A-I-A, and it's about $20 the last time I checked. Um, but it takes the place of a standalone GPS device like a Garmin. Um, and so, you know, you can have everything right on your smartphone and it's very intuitive to use. Now, are there places to charge your phone or do you just need to really conserve your battery or take a backup charger when you hike? So if you're using GPX tracks, I highly recommend that you bring um, a spare battery. I travel with one that has five phone charges on it um, because your battery drains more often. One, because it's constantly pulling your location. Um, and then also because you have the screen on a lot more. So some days when I'm on trail, I'll go through two or sometimes three full charges of my phone. And it helps to just have that spare battery to be able to plug right in. Um, but, you know, most places have electricity at night. And so you can charge up your spare battery again and you can charge your phone. Now, in terms of things you don't have to charge, there's some other gear issues I want to ask you about. And, you know, in vagabonding, I don't recommend necessarily that you get a lot of boutique gear, but I do recommend you get good shoes and a good pack. So in terms of shoes and a pack for this kind of travel, what do you recommend? So as far as shoes go, I really recommend something that's waterproof and has good traction and also something that doesn't stick out like a sore thumb. So I recommend European walking shoes. They have a lot of the benefits of hiking boots, um, but they're super lightweight and they blend in. If you're going to go out for dinner that night or go to a museum, they, uh, they just look like really nice shoes, but they're actually super functional. So you don't necessarily need to wear these giant uh, alpining boots when you're walking uh, for, for six to eight miles a day. No, I don't. Uh, what about packs? Um, I know that you mentioned some situations like in the Lake District where you might leave your bigger pack at home and, and do some day, day pack hiking. Um, would you get a kind of backpack that you might use in the American West? Or are there, is there a, sort of some specialty gear in terms of packs that you would use in a place like Europe? So I really recommend a special kind of pack and it doesn't really have a name, but um, it's not a travel pack and it's not a hiking pack. It's actually a fusion of the two. And more of these are starting to come out as, you know, active travel becomes more of a thing. The problem with choosing one of the two extremes and why I don't recommend either of those is because they don't really work well for, for the other purpose. So for example, if you choose a hiking backpack, you know, a lot of times that's not going to have the functionality that you want for traveling all the time. So it won't open all the way, um, which, you know, is a super helpful feature when you're packing and unpacking every night. Um, you know, it, it will look like a hiking backpack, which you don't necessarily want to stick out all the time. If you choose a travel backpack, uh -huh. um, then a lot of times it doesn't have the functionality for walking. So it won't have water bottle holsters 
for example. Mm-hmm. So you really want to find a pack that has kind of the features that you want for travel and for hiking. And I list out all of those features in my book in terms of what you should look for. So, um, you know, water bottle holsters, very important. A waist belt, super important. A chest strap, really important. Lots of pockets, the ability to open all the way instead of being top loading. Those are the things that you really want to look for with a good pack. And then also, I really recommend that whatever pack you choose, train with it a lot beforehand. Make sure it really is a good fit because uh, nothing can really ruin your trip faster than a bad backpack, unless it's bad shoes. And I imagine another thing would be like the wrong uh, set of clothes. So in terms of packing light and, and being functional and, and being somewhat fashionable, what kinds of tips, including what might feel obvious or what might feel counterintuitive is, as far as what to bring in terms of clothing? So I recommend carrying as little as possible. Um, and so I, I detail in my book a capsule travel hiking wardrobe. And it comes in really handy because you'll be covered for everything from a muddy, rainy hike to a visit to a nice restaurant or a great museum um, while carrying very few items. So when I travel like this, when I go on hiking trips in Europe, I have one town outfit, one trail outfit. I have two pairs of shoes. I have lots of crossover layers that give me warmth that can be worn in town or on trail. Um, And that's basically it. So my whole backpack when I'm doing this is around 18 to 20 pounds. Hmm. Um, yeah. And so all of that really works. You don't need a lot of things. I mean, you know, I have my one pair of trail pants and if they get dirty during the day, I just wash them at night, hang them up and they're dry by the next morning. The, the key with having a travel capsule wardrobe and making that work is that one, you have to choose um, fabrics that are good fabrics. So I really recommend Merino wool for, you know, covering any smell and then for also, uh, being warm when wet and being super functional and it dries really quickly. Um, and you also want to choose stuff that goes together really well. So, you know, my, my puffy coat that I wear on trail also looks generally nice when I wear it out at night. And so, you know, choosing colors that coordinate is really great. And then just making sure that while you're not really investing in boutique items, you invest in quality because, you know, when you're using things every single day and you're really giving them a lot of use, it's easy for cheaper gear to fall apart. Yeah, that 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 could be an excuse right there. And this applies to boots and packs too. just spend a little bit extra when you're in a situation where you're traveling long term, where you're traveling on the trail and you and the cheap stuff that might fall apart, you just don't need in your pack. Right. So uh, do you carry a first aid kit? I do. I carry a small first aid kit. What kind of what kind of things do you keep? What what are your essentials, your basics for as far as a small first aid kit? So I always carry ibuprofen. Um, I always carry blister stuff. I carry band-aids. Um, and then I usually carry some Benadryl with me, but not much beyond that. I mean, a lot of times I'll have, you know, maybe depending on who I'm hiking with, if I'm the leader, if I'm the super responsible one in charge, then I'll pack a few extra items, especially if someone's not really used to hiking a lot, uh, just to be safe. But for myself, I, I go just with the things that I've used in the past. Do you bring any water purification stuff? I don't ever. Hmm. So you just drink the water that's available. Yeah. There's a lot of water available on trail when you're in Europe. So, you know, you'll walk through mountain huts and restaurants where you can refill your water bottles. But then also if you're in somewhere like Switzerland, you know, a lot of times the farmers leave a fountain running or some type of trough. And so you can get fresh water there as you're walking. Cool. Now, one thing being an American hiker by, by nature, one thing that struck me as weird when I saw Europeans or Asians hiking are their trekking poles. Is there an argument for trekking poles or is it just a fancy European thing? So trekking poles can be really great for people who have difficulty with their knees, um, especially when they're going downhill because they the load. I might point out the trekking poles are sort of like ski poles for hikers. How would you describe them? Exactly like you did. Ski poles yeah. for hikers. Yeah, okay. 
Yeah. Um, so yeah, they're really great. I recommend them for people who have knee issues. Hmm. Um, but if you don't have knee issues, I would say leave them at home one, because you don't need the weight Two, because they can be difficult to stow when you're on rockier sections and you can't use them. And three, because they actually degrade the surface of the trail quite a bit. And so nothing wrecks the tread of a trail faster than trekking poles. So if you want to be a really responsible hiker like that, um, if you don't need the trekking poles, leave them at home. What about languages? Do you, do you find, I mean, you speak German apparently, but um, can you get by with English on the trails of Europe? You can, yeah. You know, English is so widely used nowadays, even in a lot of the rural spots. Um, and, you know, these trails, they're used to people from out of town, not necessarily from, you know, the United States all the time, but they're used to other European hikers who are speaking other languages. And so English is a very common, common denominator for them. And so a lot of times you can get by with English. Um, in my book, I dip down to Morocco and I dip over to Turkey and it can be a little more difficult to find people who speak English in those locations, but they're such great places to hike. Um, when I was in Turkey, I did a lot of pantomiming and, you know, I felt like I had some really deep and great conversations with people, and we didn't even say a word. That's great. I, I guess that's uh, those are skills that you can learn in general travel that would apply to uh, to backcountry travel or town to town travel as well. Totally. Uh, so a, a couple of other issues here that might be a little bit unique to this type of travel. Describe to me half board, which I didn't, I, I wasn't fully aware of until I read your book. What's half board? So half board is when you're staying in accommodations and you want breakfast and dinner. They call it half board. So most places um, along the trail will automatically serve you breakfast in the morning. But if you order half board, they'll also include your dinner for a flat rate. Uh, and I would imagine that's probably better savings than finding a restaurant. Yeah, a lot of times it's um, multiple courses. So you'll get a starter, you'll get a main dish and a dessert. Um, it's not beverages that are included. Typically, um, you pay separately for those. But you know, a lot of times half board can only add maybe 15 euros. And so you can get a three course meal for 15 euros. And the one caveat with half board is that, you know, they cook one thing every day for the half board menu. And so, you know, you just show up and it's dealer's choice, but I've never had a bad experience with half board. And it's actually kind of fun to not have to look at a menu, um, to just be able to be cooked what they're best at. Now, do you get this in huts or is it mainly in guest houses? Both. It's kind of all over. Um, but it's very common in huts because a lot of times there's no alternative for eating dinner. Let's talk about huts a little bit, just because that might be a little bit foreign to a lot of American travelers. So it's it's sort of like a lean-to or a little structure along a trail. Um, what's the sleeping situation like? What is the etiquette in these situations? What's the bathroom situation? Paint a picture for us about what it's like to sleep in a hut. So there are actually different kinds of huts throughout Europe. So depending where you go, you can have a totally different experience. So if you're up north, like in Norway or Sweden... The huts are very bare bones, so they're, you know, they could have bunk beds in them, but it'll be like one open room with bunk beds and then maybe a table and a sink, and everything is just in that one room. Um, and then you have to bring, you know, all of your silverware, you bring your bedding, um, you bring all of your food. Now, if you contrast that with somewhere like a hut in France or in Germany, a lot of those mountain huts, one, have a lot of different rooms to them. They're quite larger. Um, and then they also have a lot more services. So yes, you can find the dorm room that has a lot of bunk beds, but they'll provide you with linens. Um, and a lot of times the hut uh, person will be making all the food for you. So you don't have to bring any of your food and there's electricity. So you can plug in your devices. Um, some of those huts even have private rooms. So if you don't want to sleep in a dormitory, you know, you can reserve a private room as well. Nice. The huts are really, really amazing experiences for getting to know other walkers. And, you know, I've done mainly dormitories when I've been in mountain huts. And, you know, it's kind of fun to play cards with everybody until late at night. And then you crawl in your bed. And, um, you know, 
typically it's group bathrooms that are grouped by gender. So, you know, you just have to plan when you're going to shower because if you're trying to shower around three or four or five in the afternoon, when everybody's coming in from the trail, you could wait quite a while. Um, but yeah, it's a really cool experience. It sounds like these huts might be the legacy of what hostels were 20 years ago, because I think since the advent of Wi-Fi and smartphones, hostels are less interactive than they used to be. And I don't mean to be grim about that. It's just you're, you're less likely to talk to people in, in the common room because everybody's on their device. I presume right. it's, it's more it's more social in, in huts now. Yeah, especially because in the places, um, well, I would say not even just the places where they serve you food, even the places, you know, the huts up in Sweden and Norway where you provide your own food, um, you're sitting down at a communal table and you are all eating together and you're sitting, you know, right next to people from other countries and, you know, there are so many opportunities for conversation and because there's a lot of times in these mountain huts, no Wi-Fi, no cell phone service. You don't have any option other than interacting with people. Which which is a great bonus of this kind of travel. Now, yeah. Um, uh, one other sort of American-oriented uh, point that you make in your book is the argument for rest days, because I think there's an American instinct to 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 accomplish things, to put in miles on the road. But you make a good argument for throwing in a rest day every once in a while. What, what's the argument for, for intentionally planning rests on this kind of travel? So it's a good rest for your body, especially, you know, when you're hiking longer than maybe you've ever hiked before. Um, but it's also a really good balm for your soul. And to use that time as a restorative experience. So I generally like to plan a rest day after every two or three hiking days um, and just kind of make it a very regular thing because that way, you know, you can see a museum. You can go and do a little sightseeing. You know, I'm, I'm not such a purist that I'm saying, you know, you have to hike and that is all you can do. I say mix in other things. You know, if you want to take a bus to a neighboring town and see something that you think is really cool, Go for it. Do it on a rest day. A rest day is also a really wonderful opportunity to sleep in. Um, you know, on most of these walking days, you're getting up and you're getting out there because, you know, you might have a full day on trail. And it's so nice every two or three days just to sleep in a little longer and then, you know, do a little laundry. Take care of your travel chores at a more relaxed pace. And, and to even poke around town and get a little deeper than you could when you're in a new place every night. I think that's a good point that, again, this is it's not just a physical activity, but it's an alternative to the city based sightseeing route that we often take through Europe, that it's a chance to get to know a culture, not just to hike, but get, to get to know a culture in a counterintuitive and less urban way. Yeah. Now, um, uh, assuming that there's uh, people in the audience who are suddenly inspired and have learned things that they never knew about hiking in, in Europe, if they were to say, uh, plan a trip for 2020, what would they need to do now? Where do they start making this kind of travel a reality? So the very first thing is to pinpoint the right trail because all of your planning hinges on that. So, you know, dive in the, into the kinds of trails that are out there, but then also really get comfortable with where you are going to be physically at that period, at that time, and you know, the kind of experience that you're into, because it's not enough to find a trail that's a great trail. You really have to find the right one for you. So, you know, do your homework, find the right trail. And then once you have that nailed down, then you can book your flights, you can book your accommodations, you can start your training, you can start picking up your gear. Um, but really, the very first thing is to find that trail. And as a final thought, what are what are the rewards and, and benefits of, of doing this sort of journey? You know, I think if it can change someone who had a complete travel breakdown, uh, like me, I think that it can really inspire someone who who is looking for something more with travel. Something that I see over and over is that, you know, people try out hiking-based travel, and all of a sudden, they're reinvigorated. You know, if they're a seasoned traveler, they're reinvigorated. But if they've never really done any travel before, um, it just has this fulfilling ring to it. It has this authenticity. You know, I 
I think in today's society, we kind of miss out also on connecting with our bodies, on really doing physically challenging things and experiencing landscapes through all of our senses. And you do that in such a great way when you're walking every day when you travel. You know, you're taking in the landscapes in a way that you couldn't from a car. You're smelling what it smells like in that location. Um, You know, you are seeing the things that nobody maybe thinks are really important, but are actually super important. I've come across um, World War II plane wreckages. I've come across um, ancient Roman ruins, you know, and then I've also come across like little tiny chapels that some unknown farmer 300 years ago put on his property. And it's like every day is just filled with things that you don't really expect. And I think that's one of the really great things about walking-based travel, especially in Europe, is you get away from the expectations. Because when you plan a traditional sightseeing trip, you already have kind of an idea in your mind of what you're going to see. And then everything is kind of filtered into that, but there are not a lot of surprises. And when you just let the trail unfold, there is always something that's new and exciting on the horizon. And that's a really cool way to just kind of let things go, let things come to you and really soak in the culture in a different way. This has been Deviate with Rolf Potts. More about everything that was just mentioned, including links to Cassandra Overby's book, Exploring Europe on Foot, can be found in the show notes at rolfpotts.com deviate. And as always, you can contact me with insights or questions at deviate at This episode was produced by Justin Glow. Cedar Van Tassel does the theme music. Thanks for listening, and I hope you tune in for future episodes of Deviate with Rolf Potts. <laughs> <laughs>